This morning's scripture reading is from Psalm 75. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, mixed, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever, and I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off. But the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you they reveal to us who you are. We thank you they reveal to us your wrath. And I pray that we are not turned off by a tough subject. We're not turned off by a not comfy subject, but we are delighted in you because of what your wrath shows us about your son. I pray that you would open our eyes to the wondrous things that are contained in your word, that we might see how wonderful and how holy and how glorious and righteous you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there was an event this week at, not an event, there was a, possible some of you have seen it, there was a church in Minneapolis. It's, it's hard to actually read of what's occurred. Um, where a pastor, co-pastor, whose name was Anna, fill in the blanks there, um, at a Lutheran church read what was called the Sparkle Creed. I considered reading the content of this creed, but then I realized that it, the theology was too repugnant that I could not in good conscience read it from this pulpit. She made comments about God being non-binary in this creed and Jesus having two dads, and you can see where this is going. Uh, it's completely opposite of historic biblical Christianity. You can Google it and you can find it if you really want to read what it is. But this was spoken from a Lutheran church. And the very heart of it, as I read this, was this is a pastor who does not believe in the Bible, of course, but also does not believe in the wrath of God. And one theologian in the 1930s, so you know, nearly 100 years ago, had said this. His name was H. Richard Niebuhr. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. He wasn't celebrating this. It was a depiction of what we would today would call progressive Christianity or historically liberal Christianity, not politically liberal, but just simply demonstrating what one does or does not believe about the scriptures. In the beginning of that quote, a God without wrath. That is the exact picture of what 
this progressive Christianity or this pastor in Minnesota believes about God. And now, I've said this before several times already this summer, we don't really like talking about the wrath of God, do we? And now, some of you might think, wow, new pastor really likes talking about the wrath of God. And really like saying we don't like talking about the wrath of God. And yet this week, I looked at four or five different works that all made the comment that we downplay the wrath of God. I saw it in a Bible dictionary. I saw it in uh, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. I read it in another work from, you know, the last century of the 1930s from um, a book called The Attributes of God by a man named Pink. Um, all of these specifically stated we do not view the wrath of God appropriately. We downplay it. We don't like talking about it. In J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, he poses the question, how often in the last year did you hear, or if you are a minister, did you preach a sermon on the wrath of God? Interestingly enough, we're a little bit higher than the average um, because of the Psalms. But he goes on, How long is it, I wonder, since a Christian spoke straight on the subject on radio or television, or in one of those half-colon sermonettes that appear in some national dailies and magazines? And if one did so, how long would it be before he was asked to speak or write again? The fact is that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society. And Christians, by and large, have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. That was all from J.I. Packer's Knowing God, which he wrote in, I believe, the 1980s. So, things haven't changed much. If anything, we've become less likely to speak of the wrath of God. And what a shame that we have conditioned ourselves to never speak of an important topic, an incredibly important topic that is communicated to us in the Holy Scriptures. And more than that, given the importance of this, did you know there are more references in Scripture to God's anger, fury, and wrath than there are to His love? And yet, think about that. Because of how often is the first thing most people say about God is God is love. And yes, that is Scripture. God is love. Amen. But what is it that the angels around the throne are singing about God? They're not singing love, love, love. They're singing holy, holy, holy. And God's wrath and God's holiness are inextricable. A holy God must also be wrathful against sin. And yet for us, this summer has been a bit of a ride as it comes to the, the wrath of God. And it, it will continue to be. The last two psalms, Psalm 73 and Psalm 74, have had God's wrath at the center of it. The psalm today is about God's wrath. And then 76, 77, 78, 79, and 80 all have God's wrath at some point or another in them. So our summer in the psalms really is a summer of wrath, which doesn't sound very exciting to most people, but it is a core doctrine of scripture that we understand that God has wrath and is wrathful against sin. 
And yet, since it's so present in front of us, it's probably appropriate that I define it. So what is the wrath of God? Well, it's God's appropriate response to sin. It's the appropriate response that a holy and righteous God would have towards sin and transgression of his law. God's anger toward sin. His righteous indignation. A pure, unstained, set-apart, holy God must hate unholiness and unrighteousness and evil. And a just God must punish lawlessness. Those are important things we understand before we come to this. Because not only do people not like talking about wrath, as we see from what I mentioned with the subject of things like that Sparkle Creed, a lot of people simply deny that God is wrathful. And yet it's core to the scriptures. And so even though this psalm is about wrath, it might be quite different than you expect. It's not all hellfire and brimstone, though that certainly is there. But take note of verse 1. The psalm begins with thanksgiving. And then the psalm ends in verse 10 with praise. We seldom equate thanksgiving and praise with wrath, but that's exactly what the psalmist does here. And truthfully, it's wonderful. But yet, if you want an easy three-point outline or application, I'll give that to you now. Recount the wondrous deeds of God. Boast in His goodness, not in your own. And praise Him for His wrath. Let me read verse 1, though. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. We give thanks to you, O God. We recount your wondrous deeds. So here, in this first part, as I mentioned, we give thanks for your wondrous deeds. He's, as we see through the rest of the psalm, he's thanking God for his wrath. Not simply his wrath, but everything wonderful that the Lord has ever done. But that does include his wrath. But also, we see that it starts with a we. It starts with a first-person plural, which is important because of how often the speaker changes in this psalm. And so here, we give thanks. It seems the psalmist is speaking on behalf of all of the people of God here. And then it becomes a little more reduced as the psalm goes on. What, so what is the psalmist thanking God for? Well, he's thanking God that his name is near. If you flip back, likely one page, could be on the same page for you. If you look at the beginning of Psalm 74, how does Psalm 74 start? Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? And yet this psalm think, begins with, we, th we give thanks for your name is near. The psalmist is thankful that God's presence is near, and he celebrates and recounts God's wondrous deeds. The arrangement of the psalms is not random. The compiler of the psalms intentionally was doing this. Whereas Psalm 74 is the psalmist worrying and concerned that God has abandoned him and God has left him. In Psalm 75, the psalmist rejoices that God is near. And yet how is that so much like our own lives? That one day we're worried that God has abandoned us, that God is gone, that God has forsaken us that we are far off from God, and the next day we were at church rejoicing in God's presence. 
which is why it can be so helpful for us to journal in our lives and just to recall what God has done that is wonderful to do it on paper or computer or your phone or whatever it might be because it gives us a wonderful and easy place to remember the wondrous deeds that God has done in our lives, even at times when it seems like he might be far off. It can be good to go back to that journal, to go back to that notebook or that notepad or whatever it might be, and remember how God has been good to us, how God has done wondrous things in our lives. But it's also why it's a blessing that we have the scriptures to see the wondrous things that God has done in history and how he has communicated that and preserved that for us. Because it's so easy that one day or one month we'll wonder, where are you, Lord? And the next day we find ourselves thankful that God is near and guiding our footsteps. And really, that ends up being one very early point of application this morning. Normally, I don't get to application very early. But remember the wondrous deeds of God and what he has done in your life. Especially in moments where you or others seem to think that he is far off. You can recall how God's been good and merciful and kind and wonderful to you. And then in the second stanza, there's, there's a change of speaker. It shifts from the first person, plural, of we to I, but the speaker is different. Let me read verses 2 through 5 and see if you pick up on who the speaker is. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keeps steady the pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak to the haughty neck. So who is the one who judges equity? Who is the one who holds the earth steady and keeps its pillars steady? But God, it's the Lord. It's the Lord who's speaking here. And for us, we may think that God's judgment comes slowly at times, but he always judges at the right time. He judges with equity. And at the set time that I appoint, he judges exactly as he intends to and when he intends to. He judges perfectly and at the right time. And yet at the same point, it answers the concern of the psalmist in 73 and 74. As the psalmist is looking and declaring, when will you judge the wicked? When will you judge the evil? At the time that he sees fit, at the set time, he will judge and he will judge perfectly and with equity. The earth shakes. This is something we see throughout the Psalms quite a bit. When the earth totters and its inhabitants, when the earth shakes, it is God who keeps the pillars steady. Even when it seems like the entire world is falling apart, when we look at the newspaper and we see everything going bonkers, the Lord is steadying its pillars. And it's, I've said this before, but it's like the children's song. He's got the whole world in his hands. It's not literal, but it's the same sort of idea that God is taking care of and guiding and holding together the earth. But following this, the Lord speaks with a charge. It's a very important charge in verse 4. He speaks to the, bo the, the boastful and the wicked and the haughty. He tells the wicked, do not lift up your horn, which is an odd phrase. It's not something we would use very frequently, probably at all. Yet the idea is the, 
raising of one's horn as a symbol of power. Um, commentators suggest that it draws back to the idea of an alpha male raising his horn to show that he's boss. He is the one with power. And the Lord is telling the wicked person, do not do this. Do not celebrate or rest in your own power. And for the Christian, the scriptures advise us that the only boast we ought to have is the boast that is in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in Christ and in Christ alone. The disciple of Jesus should be marked with humility, not with boastfulness. And verse 5 repeats what is in verse 4 as well. So verse 4 saying, do not boast and do not lift up your horn. And in verse 5, do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. And so as far as things go in Scripture, when things are repeated, they're, they're very important. This is being declared twice. Do not be haughty. Do not be boastful. Do not celebrate your own power. The idea of lifting up one's horn in both 4 and 5, it's, we're going to get to that again at the end of the psalm. It's repeated again in verse 10. And there's a punishment promised for the wicked involving their horns. But before we get to that, verses 6 through 8 give us some important context to what follows for the boastful, the wicked, and the haughty. And then in verse 6, though, the speaker changes again. So we've got verse 1 and 2. We've got we with the psalmist speaking on behalf of the people of God. And then in 2 through 7, or sorry, 2 through 5, we've got the Lord speaking. 6 through 8, we've got the psalmist speaking. Some commentators stated that it was a preacher speaking but it's an explanation further of who God is. So it likely, though, returns to the psalmist from verse 1. However, that party is stating a further support for why the wicked should not be haughty, why they should not lift up their horns or be boastful. He steps back and gives the reader a picture of the majesty and the wrath of God. In verses 6 through 7, for not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Lifting up yourself is vain frivolity. It is the Lord who lifts up and puts down. It is the Lord who executes judgment, and that judgment is humbling the wicked and lifting up the righteous. But in verse 8, Verse 8 gives a really important picture of God. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. So he gives this description of this cup that is in the hand of the Lord, and it's a cup with foaming wine that is well mixed. And it's kind of an odd because we don't really think of wine in those manners, and we don't really think of this as being a bad thing, generally speaking. I mean, maybe you do, but... The picture here isn't exclusive to this text, and actually other parts of the Old Testament really help us to understand and to fill out what we should understand here. In the same language, it shows up several times in Jeremiah. It shows up in Isaiah 51, verse 17. It shows up in Revelation 14, and it shows up in Revelation 18. I'll read a few of those. In Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 16, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup 
of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They drink and stagger and shall be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So though it doesn't say it in the psalm here, in Jeremiah 25, we see this cup of the wine of wrath. And also take note, they shall drink and stagger and be crazed. That language is repeated in some of the other verses I'm going to read. And then Isaiah 51, 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, you, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl of the staggering cup, the bowl of the cup of staggering. So staggering is repeated there as well. And then finally, the last one I'm going to read for today, from Revelation 14, 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur into the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, lest these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. And so in Revelation, we see that those who've taken the mark of the beast on their forehead or on their hand will take the cup of his wrath. And I won't get into the mark of the beast or anything like that, but I will take a note. The book of Revelation does demonstrate that anyone who takes this mark, whatever it might be, will not do so by accident. I say that because a lot of people are worried about that. That's the mark is specifically identified with the denial of Jesus Christ as Lord. But the cup, to return to the text, the cup is foaming and it is well mixed. What a very picturesque description here. And yet it shows us that God's wrath is being poured out perfectly. It is well mixed. And fully, it is foaming. And yet it is, it's not haphazard, it's not hasty, but it's patient and well-prepared. And yet far too often as we hear other people describe the wrath of God, it's described as if God pours out his wrath willy-nilly or just however, but that's not the picture the scriptures give us. Well-mixed. It is done perfectly. It is not done just because God got angry one day. But God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. It is patient and it is well prepared. And then in verse 8, though, we see the cup is emptied down to the dregs. Imagine when you get to the bottom of a nasty pot of coffee where it's bitter and it's gross. And you've got the grounds that have leaked through the filter and yet it's been on that heat, little heat whatever it's called, the little heat plate at the bottom, too long, so it's extra chunky and it's thick like molasses and you don't really want to drink it, but you need coffee, so you have to. It's kind of like that, but not coffee, but wrath, but really just a really disgusting drink. That's sort of the picture we're given of the wine here, that it's drunk down to the dregs it's poured out on the wicked of the earth and it's drained down to the dregs, which is repeated several times throughout Scripture. It was mentioned in one of the verses I mentioned a moment ago. 
And yet, in the midst of this text, in verse 9, I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. The psalmist is praising God for his wrath, that he will pour wrath out on the wicked. We should also praise God for his wrath. And not just because we like seeing evil people punished, but because it's right and good that it occurs. It's not just that we don't like that person, we want to see them getting theirs, but it's because God is holy and God is just, and that is what he will do, and we should cherish holiness and justice. And because God's wrath is against sin is because God is just. And he cannot allow evil and sin to endure, and he will not. But in addition to that, after I'm going to ask a hypothetical. If God is not wrathful, what is salvation? If there's no wrath in God, as some would like to say, what are we saved from? The entry for wrath from a Bible dictionary that I reviewed this week appropriately stated it this way. If there is no wrath, there is no salvation. Because ultimately, the salvation we receive in Christ Jesus is a salvation from God's judgment and God's wrath. Because we are sinful people who deserve God's wrath. But then verse 10, verse 10 is interesting, because verse 10 seems to return back to the Lord speaking as he was in verses 2 through 5, as he's returning to the concept of horns being lifted up, the Lord states that he will cut off the horns of the wicked. So if you want your horns to be lifted up, they'll be removed entirely. They'll be lifted off from you. They will be removed. Those who seek to lift themselves up to boast in their own deeds will find themselves humiliated. The righteous, though, will be lifted up. As I mentioned last week, we need to have a good definition for wicked. Because wicked isn't just people we don't like, and wicked isn't just men like Hitler. But rather, the wicked are all of those who have broken God's laws, which ultimately is every last one of us. And who is the righteous one, though? If every one of us is wicked, who then is righteous? Who is being lifted up? And of course, it's Jesus. He's the righteous one who was lifted up on a cross. And on that cross, he drank the full cup of God's wrath. Because the cup was not taken from Christ, even though he prayed, take this cup from me, it was not taken from him. It has been taken from those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Because he took the cup, those who have faith in him do not have to. But for those who are not disciples of Jesus, the cup is foaming, it is well stirred, and that wrath still awaits those who do not have faith in Christ. But Jesus, the righteous one, has been lifted up even more. Jesus was lifted up on a cross as the righteous man who took our place on the cross. As we read earlier in Second Peter, or in First Peter, that he was sinless, that he was unstained. 
verse 22 of 1 Peter 2. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But he himself, verse 24, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then Jesus rose again, and 40 days after he rises from the dead, he ascends into heaven. He is lifted up and seated at the right hand of God where he has been given the name above every other name. The righteous one was lifted up. And Jesus became sin, but he knew no sin so that we might become his righteousness. Those who have faith in Jesus have been justified and declared as righteous. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no wrath remaining. It's important that we, re- that we realize that we should not boast in our own deeds, should not boast in our own works. We should be incredibly humble, but instead boast in what Christ has done for us. We may not like talking about God's wrath, but we're, if we're not aware of God's wrath, then we cannot understand and truly be thankful for the work of salvation and the gift of grace that is offered up in Christ. So to respond to the point from the beginning, do I like preaching on God's wrath? Well, yes. Because on the one hand, it's biblical. And on the other hand, it means that I can boast in Christ. Even though Christ died, even though Christ was sinful, in his death, the wrath of God was poured out on him. And we just sang that a moment ago in The Power of the Cross. Because when we think about the wrath of God, as Christians on this side of the cross, we also get to rejoice in the fact that the wrath was poured out on Christ Jesus. The wrath that we should have endured for our sins was poured out on Christ. And there is no condemnation left for the disciples of Jesus. What a wonderful Savior we have. And so you also have the delight to tell others of the wrath of God and then the joy of saying, wait, that's not it. I'm not done. And like Paul in Ephesians 2, we can say, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, being he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So we can delight in telling others the wrath of God because we can delight in telling them that it's been poured out on Christ and we have been made alive in him. This morning we will be taking of the Lord's Supper and because the cup of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, we can take the cup that we're taking of this morning. And that's in a few short moments we will observe this supper. And it's, it's a meal for the followers of Jesus, for the disciples of Jesus. So if you have faith in him, if you've been baptized, we ask, we invite you then to take this cup. But if you do not have faith in Jesus, if you are not following,
following Christ, if you do not believe in Jesus as Lord, as truly God of truly man who serves as a sacrifice for our sins, if none of that makes sense to you or if that's not true of you, we ask that you do not take of this cup. But we ask instead that you partake in Jesus. We ask that you let it pass at this moment. And if you would like to instead come and speak to me afterwards, come and speak to Jim afterwards, or really anyone in this congregation, and we will be glad to explain to you what all of this means. Because if you're not in Christ, the wrath of God still sits on you. As I'll read shortly, there's still judgment taken for those who do not take this table well. But for us, we, like the psalmist in verse 9, I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. We can rejoice in who God is. We can rejoice in his attributes. We can rejoice in his goodness and his holiness and his justice. We can also rejoice in his wrath and can rejoice in that it was poured out on Christ. And there is no condemnation left for those who are in Christ Jesus. I've repeated that several times because it's a hard thing for us to grasp. As we sit continually dealing with the guilt of our sin, we forget that. But we should remind it that if you are in Christ, the dregs have been poured out on him. and There's nothing left to condemn. Even in the moments where our own sinfulness condemns us or others condemn us or the adversary, the devil condemns us, there is no condemnation left. It's all been poured out on Christ for those who believe. And what a wonderful gospel that is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that it has all been poured out on Jesus and there is no condemnation left for us. And that though he was sinless, he took our sin on himself. And he has given us his perfect righteousness. We rejoice that you see us as righteous, even though we were sinners. And that while we were sinners is when you gave us your son, Jesus. While we were in enmity with you, in a few short moments as we take of this table, as we remember the body and blood of Christ, I pray that we would not take that for granted. I pray that we would not come frivolously to this text or to this text or frivolously to this table but we'd be remembered that we were bought with a price and that price was the blood of Jesus we rejoice knowing that the record of our debt has been canceled by being nailed to the cross I pray that we would uphold the wonderful gospel we have and realize that it changes everything about the way we live our lives there's no condemnation left. And if you are not bringing condemnation toward those who are in Christ Jesus, no one can. I thank you for your wrath against sin. I thank you for the salvation that we receive in Christ Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And this morning we will observe of the Lord's Supper, the ordinance in which our Lord Jesus prescribed the night that he was betrayed.
I'll read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 